Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me, and if you would, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, sometimes preachers get accused of speaking about things that are pie in the sky by and by, and never making it real, never making it practical. I hope that's not true of me. I try to take every reasonable opportunity to nail you with an application. So when you teach through the book of 1 Corinthians, it's really hard to be guilty of that because the whole book is about practical problems in the church at Corinth. And today in our study, we come to the third problem that Paul takes up. The first was divisions in the church in chapters 1 to 4. The second was immorality in chapter 5, and that expanded into the concept of church discipline. And now this morning, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, Paul is going to deal with the problem of brother taking brother to law court. Now, that's pretty practical. Should a Christian take another Christian to court? And Paul's going to answer that question in this passage. And his answer unfolds in three points that I've placed in your bulletin. Number one is the rebuke in verse one. Look at the first verse. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul has heard, as he told us in chapter one and verse one through Chloe, that there were those in the church at Corinth that were suing one another. There were those that had a case against another brother, had grounds against another brother. And instead of settling that situation within the church, they were going to court. Now, law court's pretty popular in our country. In fact, we even have it as entertainment on TV. I I, I remember the first show was Judge Wapner. Remember him? Uh, the guy that stood out in the lobby in kind of a cheap sport coat, Doug Llewellyn. At the end of every show, they would place the camera on this guy, and he would say, if you have something against someone else, don't try to handle it yourself. Take them to court. Well, Paul would disagree with that advice. In fact, if you slide down in this passage to verse 8, he says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. So when you take your brother to court, you are wronging your brother, which is very clear to me. The court, it is sin. And so his rebuke in verse 1 is, How dare you take your brother to court? Now, I think what Paul did not say in verse 1 is maybe as important as what he did say. He didn't say it's wrong to use the legal system. He doesn't say that it's wrong to have a lawsuit against a company. He doesn't even say that it's wrong to have a lawsuit against an unbeliever. He doesn't say that it's wrong to use the legal system. 
What he says is, it's wrong to take your Christian brother to court. In fact, Paul himself used the legal system. In Acts 22, Paul is about to be flogged by the Romans, and he's tied down, and the soldier is raising the flog, and Paul leans back and says, by the way, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen? Now, Paul knew it was illegal. The soldier backed up and said, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes, I am. So this guy goes and gets his boss, and he gets his boss, and it goes up the chain, and finally the uh, chief soldier comes down, and Paul's still stretched out and tied down, and he says, are you really a Roman citizen? And Paul said, says, yes, I was born a Roman citizen. Now, there were three ways to become a Roman citizen. You could be born, which means your father had to be a Roman citizen. You could buy Roman citizenship, which was very expensive, or it could be bestowed on you by the emperor, usually for some act of bravery for the Roman government. This head soldier says to Paul, when Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen, he says, really? I had to buy my citizenship. Cut this guy loose and let him go. You see, Paul claimed his rights, and he utilized the legal system. When Paul was standing before Festus in Acts 25, he said, I appeal to Caesar. That was his legal right as a Roman citizen. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, Paul is not saying never use the legal system. What he's saying is never take your brother to court. And then there's a second thing he's not saying here. And that is, he's not saying that secular courts are corrupt. He's not endorsing lawyer jokes. He's not saying you can't get justice in any secular court. He calls the court here unrighteous. But when he says that, he's not saying that all judges are unjust. He's speaking in terms of their status before God. Before God, they are unrighteous rather than righteous. They are unjust as opposed to those who are justified. And so what Paul is saying is that you're not to go to a court to try to find justice. But he's not saying that you shouldn't go there because there is no justice to be found there. He's saying that you should never even seek it against your brother there. See, Paul's saying, when you have a family issue, keep it in the family. Why take your case before men who are unjustified when you can take your your case before those who are saints? That means holy ones. And, of course, one of the reasons why the Corinthians wanted to take their brother to court is given to us in verse 8, if you look again. It says, on the contrary... You yourselves wrong and defraud. That word defraud means to extort. They wanted to take their brother to court so that they could gouge him for everything they could get. They wanted every cent they could get out of this guy. Now, we understand that because that's the way our courtroom works today. 
You hear about lawsuits and the amounts that people sue for, and your jaw drops. What are they doing? They're going beyond wanting what's fair. They want to extort from that individual. A West Virginia convenience store worker was awarded $2.699 million in punitive damages after she injured her back opening a pickle jar. That according to the Charleston Daily Mail. The injured worker also received $130,000 in compensation and $170,000 for emotional distress. A state Supreme Court justice, Spike Maynard, called this award an outrageous sum. In his dissenting opinion, he wrote, I know an excessive punitive damages award when I see one, and I see one. The court, however, upheld most of the punitive damages, net result $2.2 million for opening a pickle jar. In December 2001, the Good Housekeeping Institute tested a snack food called Pirate's Booty, which is basically flavored puffed rice and found that it contained 147 calories and 8.5 grams of fat, while its label said it contained only 120 calories and 2.5 grams of fat. The manufacturer, Robert's American Gourmet Foods, a subsidiary of Keystone Foods, blamed the problem on a change in its manufacturing process and immediately recalled the product from the store shelves. Nearly four months later, Meredith Berkman filed a $50 million class action lawsuit against Roberts Foods claiming emotional distress and weight gain, mental anguish, outrage, and indignation. The complaint claims to represent all consumers who ruined their diets and had to spend more time at the gym because they ate mislabeled pirate's booty. There's a joke there that you can make yourself. Here's my favorite. The parents of a man found naked and dead on the back of a killer whale at SeaWorld Orlando are suing the marine park, alleging the dangerous orca was portrayed as a huggable stuffed toy, according to a lawyer representing the family. Patricia and Michael Dukes of Columbia, South Carolina, filed suit in Orange County Circuit Court seeking several million dollars for pain and suffering at the loss of their only son, Daniel, 27, a drifter who drowned in July in a whale tank at the Florida theme park. After the naked corpse of Daniel Dukes was found in a tank with a killer whale at Florida SeaWorld, park officials determined that he had drowned after slipping past security and trying to swim with the whale. Attorney Patricia Sigmund says SeaWorld is legally liable because it portrayed the killer whale as human-loving and claiming that the park should warn visitors that the animal could kill people. I guess the sign on the side of the tank that says, killer whale, was not enough. Soon after youth league baseball coach Rodney Carroll guided the Brunswick, Ohio Cobras to a winless season, they went 0-15, 
a summons arrived at his house informing him that he was being sued for $2,000 by the father of his catcher. The complaint, poor coaching. Carol's incompetence, the lawsuit claimed, cost the team a trip to a tournament in Florida. And finally, according to the Associated Press, a couple has sued Air Canada for $5 million, claiming the airline lost their tabby cat during a flight from Canada to California. Andrew Wysotsky and Lori Learmont, formerly of Oshawa, Ontario, traveled to San Francisco with their 15-year-old cat, Foo, and four other cats last August. They claim Air Canada, its cargo handling company, and San Francisco International Airport personnel are guilty of negligence, negligent infliction of emotional distress, fraud, and false advertising. Five million dollars for a 15-year-old cat. Wysotsky was quoted as saying, it's not about the money. Have you ever noticed when people sue for mega millions, it's never about the money? Well, the truth is, it's always about the money. And that was true of the Corinthians. They were seeking to gouge their brother by taking him to court. And so Paul begins with a rebuke. Don't you dare. And then secondly, after the rebuke, he gives the reasons not to sue your brother in verses 2 to 7. And the fundamental reason not to sue your brother is in verse 7, and I want you to see it. He says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. The fundamental reason that you're not to take your brother to court is that when you do, you have already lost. Even if you win the case you still lose. You say, well, what do do you lose? Well, I think he mentions several things in this passage, and I want to record them. I, I see at least four things. Number one, you lose your source of authority. Look at the end of verse one. He says, you're going to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Now, we have the best courts ever in the United States today. But when you go to court in the United States, they bring the Bible out and you put your hand on the Bible and you swear on the Bible, but you know what? When you're done swearing on the Bible, they put it back in the drawer. The court is based on man's wisdom and man's laws. And what he's saying is, if you take your brother to court, you've already lost your source of authority, which is the Word of God, because you are settling for a resolution based on man's authority rather than God's authority. So when you take your brother to court, you're losing your source of authority, number one. Secondly, you're losing your position of honor. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, who are the saints? Saints are not people who've been dead for years who get canonized by the church. Saints is a a term for every believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. You are a holy one. And what does he say about the saints here? What does he say about us 
here. He says, we will judge the world. Don't you know that? You're going to judge the world. Now, the, the term judge and, and the term to rule are really interchangeable terms in Scripture because they're always ascribed to the same person. The ruler judges and the judge rules. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to the disciples, you also shall sit on 12 thrones, that's ruling, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The two to go together, ruling and judging. Solomon was the king. He was the ruler. And we see him acting as judge many times. In 1 Kings chapter 3, you remember that classic example when the two ladies come with the one baby and they can't decide which baby it belongs to and Solomon makes the judgment to cut the baby in half to determine who the mother is. He was a king and he was a judge. And so Paul is saying, we are going to judge and so rule over the world. Did you know that? You say, well, Dan, they don't even let me make decisions at work. One day, you're going to rule over and judge the world. You want another verse on that? When Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom, Daniel 7.27 says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to, and we expect him to say, the Lord. The Holy One. That's not what he says. Listen to the verse. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. It's given to us. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 tells us that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and everybody now and everybody who will be. And then we come over to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, and it tells us we will sit with him on his throne. We're going to reign. Listen carefully to the words of the song we'll sing in heaven. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased from God, for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So we are going to rule over the world. We are going to judge the world. What's Paul's point? Well, look at verse 2 again. Don't you know you're going to judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest Law, courts, you're going to be judging world matters. Don't you think you can handle a little dispute between two Christians? Don't you understand your authority? You're a future world ruler. Talk about credentials. You could put that on your resume. Talk about being, I mean, Judge Wapner's got nothing on you. So the question is, why are you passing along resolution decisions to the legal courts? You see, if one day you can judge the world, then today you can solve disputes between Christians. 
Paul's not finished with this point. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 says, God didn't subject to angels the world to come, did not subject it to angels. Who did he subject it to? Well, if you read Hebrews chapter 2, he tells us it's, it's subject to man who was made for a little while lower than the angels. You see, in the world to come, even though now we are for a little while lower than the angels, in the world to come, he tells us that we are going to rule over and judge angels. Now, that's pretty impressive because angels are pretty impressive creatures. In fact, they're awesome. In 2 Kings 19.35, it says, one angel struck and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And Paul says, we're going to rule over them. We're going to judge them. What's his point? Look at the rest of verse 3. We're going to judge angels. How much more matters of this life? If we're qualified to judge angels one day, I think we can handle the common issues that come up today. And then he finishes this point in verse 4. He says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? If you don't understand that verse, neither do I. That's a very difficult verse to translate. To understand that, you just have to read the various translations. The New King James and my translation here, the New American Standard, make it a question. But I prefer the Old King James and the NIV, which makes this a statement. And the statement goes something like this. If you need to have a judgment made, make your judge the least esteemed person in the church. You get the point? The least esteemed person in the church is better suited to judge matters within the church than the most esteemed person outside of the church. So when you go outside the church to resolve a conflict with your brother, you lose. You lose your source of authority. You lose your position of honor. Thirdly, you lose your place of wisdom. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? I I think there's a touch of sarcasm there. Paul is saying, you Corinthians who pride yourself in your wisdom, isn't there one wise man among you? Isn't there one person who is wise enough to act as judge? And apparently not, because verse 6 goes on to say, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. You're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. And yet, to your shame, you're not wise enough to resolve a dispute. Instead, Christians are taking Christians to secular court. And then the fourth thing you lose is your testimony. Did you catch that phrase at the end of verse 6? And that before unbelievers. Who watches when a Christian takes another Christian to court? 
The unbelievers do. What did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have lawsuits with one another. I don't think so. If you have love for one another. There's no quicker way to destroy your testimony than by suing a fellow Christian. And then verse 7 sums it up again. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. When you take your brother to the court, you lose before you get there. The very act of going is a defeat. You cannot win. You lose your source of authority. You lose your position of honor. You lose your place of wisdom. You lose your testimony. Which brings us to the third point, the response of a mistreated believer. What do you do when another Christian mistreats you? What do you do when another Christian defrauds you? Well, let me suggest three things. Number one, be willing to surrender your rights. Look at verse 7. Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? There's a novel idea. Why not take a loss? Why not refuse to defend yourself and just take the consequences? Then notice what he says in verse 8. On the contrary, not you Corinthians, you yourselves wrong and defraud and you do this even to your brethren. Now, if you notice that, he says, you're either wronged and defrauded or you go to court and in doing so, you wrong and defraud. There's only two choices. You can be wronged or you can take them to court and wrong them. You can lose or you can take them to court and gouge them. And Paul is saying the choice for a believer ought to be to take the loss. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, this seems like sort of a, a, a unique application, but I think this whole concept really points to the very substance of the gospel and a changed life. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter was feeling pretty spiritual and he asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 490 times. And then he told a story about a king who decided to settle accounts in his kingdom and he found that he, he had a, uh, a slave who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent equals 17 years of work. Just take your salary and multiply it by 17. That would be one talent. This guy owed 10,000 talents, so he owed 170,000 years of work. I don't know how you steal that much money. And this, this guy had to be like 
the bookkeeper and he embezzled half the kingdom. The interesting thing is that he didn't have the money anymore. So I'm going, well, how do you spend that much money? So the king says, all right, you don't have the money? We'll sell you and your family. Imagine that. He goes on the auction and you go, well, we've got an embezzler here. You know, pretty good with numbers, but do I have an opening bid? Going to go pretty cheap. Before they can take him away, he says, wait a minute. If you give me a chance, I'll repay. Right, I'm going to repay 170,000 years worth of work. And the king felt compassion on him and forgave him his debt and set him free. Did you ever owe anybody a debt you couldn't pay? Yeah. Because the king in the story is God. But that guy goes out and finds another slave who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarii is one day's wage. So this fellow owes him a hundred days' wages, and he doesn't even ask the guy to pay him back first. It says he grabs him by the neck and chokes him and says, repay me. And the guy says, well, if you give me a chance, I will. And the guy doesn't give him a chance. He throws him in prison for his debt. The king finds out and has this fellow brought back in front of him. And he says, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And he took that fellow, and it's one of the most harsh expressions in all the New Testament. It says he took him and turned him over to the torturers until he could repay his debt. Now, how's he going to repay his debt in the hands of the torturer? He's not. You know what the lesson is? Jesus says, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Does it make sense for me to have been forgiven everything and then not to forgive my brother? You know, there's a verse in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We love that verse, don't we? I think a lot of Christians quote that verse on their way to law court. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I'm going to get even. Jesus quotes that from the Old Testament Then he says this, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then he gets real specific. And he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Ouch. Somebody defrauds you? They want to take your car? Give them your house. What's he saying? 
Take the loss. Take the loss. So the first response, and I think the primary response when you're mistreated, is to be willing to surrender your rights. Second response, attempt personal reconciliation. You see, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not going to take that guy to court, even though I could, but see if I ever speak to him again. You can't take that position. Why not? Because this fellow is a Christian brother. And so you have to attempt personal reconciliation. It may fall into the category, that pattern of discipline we talked about in chapter 5, where there may be an issue that involves discipline at some point, but you have to initiate that reconciliation. So be willing to surrender your rights, attempt personal reconciliation, and then thirdly, seek Christian arbitration. You know, I think there's an implication in this passage that if two Christians are are at an impasse, maybe it's over a business situation, rather than pursuing legal avenues, you should come to the leaders of the church. I know some churches that have court once a month. Two parties come in and agree that they're going to accept the decision, and they sit in front of a godly arbitrator based on God's truth, and they resolve the issue. And I think that's clearly implied in this passage, that if you have that kind of impasse and you can't get beyond it, that you settle it in the church. So his point in this passage is real simple. Don't take your brother to court because when you do, you lose spiritually before you ever get there. You lose before you ever hear the verdict. So the right response is to just take the loss materially. A material loss is much better than a spiritual loss. Or work it out within the context of the church. Because there are some things that are more important than your rights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage that is so practical. It's not hard to understand. And yet in our society, it's so difficult to apply because we're in a litigation-happy society. Father, I pray that you would help us to be obedient and faithful to your word despite what everybody else may be telling us or what everybody else may be doing. And I pray that truly our testimony might shine as lights in this world because we're different and we follow your truth, not man's truth. We thank you for the privilege of seeing that in this passage and seeking to obey it in Jesus' name. Amen.